Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Thursday, April 20th. We are now less than 40 days away from the Alberta provincial election. We took the opportunity to speak with political analyst Jason Ribeiro for his thoughts on the race so far and what we can expect to see from the candidates as we get closer to Election Day, May 29th. Mental health impacts our ability to face life's challenges. Social worker and mental health advocate Karen Gallagher-Burt joins us for her semi-monthly segment to share with us the many resources available for those struggling, including the 211 helpline. What have been the biggest successes and the biggest challenges for Canada's cannabis industry since legalization? And what does the future look like for the industry? We spark up the conversation with George Smitherman, President and CEO of the Cannabis Council of Canada. Have you decided who you'll be voting for in the upcoming provincial election? With just 39 days till Albertans head to the polls, we're joined this morning by Jason Ribeiro, political analyst and president of the Calgary Surge, and a look at the state of Alberta politics with, yes, less than 40 days ahead of us. Good morning to you, Jason. Morning. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. We're uh, rounding the corner. Boy, it seems like it was so out of reach, this election. And now, yep, less than 40 days away. I'm wondering uh, your thoughts uh, as far as what we're going to see when it comes to the campaigns that have been run so far. Are we going to see them chugging along as they have been? Or is it going to be a case that voters are going to have to buckle up because things could get a little rough over the next 39? Yeah, I think we're going to need to buckle up. Uh, it's been It's been a little bit tame I think you've seen a lot of time and effort invested in some pre-election activities. You know, the NDP, uh, I think, has been quite organized in its ground game. So it shouldn't be a surprise that you'll see uh, a lot of folks door knocking in a very visible way and for some time. Uh, But you're also seeing the UCP coming off of that, that budget cycle making a number of announcements uh, leading into what they hope, I think, is a pre-election narrative, that they're, they're a government that has a record that is the right one for Alberta. And so they're using the tools that they have differently, the UCP obviously using the, the bully pulpit and, and, and the premier's desk and, and the NDP using, I think, a lot of their opposition tactics. You're seeing a lot of this, uh, these uh, ads that have been running, particularly on health care, uh, but also their ground game to make their case. I think as soon as the writ is dropped, all bets are off and and we as voters will need to buckle up. It seems, Jason, there's been a lot of flip-flopping from Premier Danielle Smith and the UCP party. I mean, you know, we hear, you know, uh, never paying for doctor services, for example, when earlier we had heard, you know, maybe it's time for Albertans to start paying for doctor services. And as well, you know, we hate the Liberals, basically, but, oh, wait, we're going to do the Liberals' $10 daycare child plan, but we're going to do it in Alberta way. Does it seem like there's, I don't know, just sort of mixed messaging coming out of that party? A hundred percent. And I think what's making this so jarring is that, look, this is a, a party that I've argued is still based on Jason Kenney's image. It was a party built on Jason Kenney's image. It was a blueprint that he had a lot of say in, in terms of how the party was constructed, the policy platform that won the election in 2019. And just because the leadership race has happened doesn't mean those fundamental things have changed. What has changed is that now that Daniel Smith has come in, and she is a candidate with a history, uh, a candidate that has lost trust within her party, within the conservative movement, earned it back in in some ways. She has had these inconsistencies uh, throughout her tenure, and now she happens to be in the premier's chair. I don't think that that changes, but it is jarring in contrast with a, a party that was you know, pretty disciplined, pretty cohesive in its messaging, 
and now is is having to reckon with the fact that some of the stalwarts of that party, the Travis Taves, the Sonia Savages, are not going to be there, and you have a less coherent and particular economic message coming from Danielle Smith. And so I, I think this is going to come down uh, to an election of trust, at least in its early stages. You know, has trust been repaired within the conservative movement by Danielle Smith from her time as Wild Rose leader and then crossing over to the PCs? Uh, does she have the trust of the average Albertan, the average Calgarian who doesn't know really where they shake out? And do people trust Rachel Notley again to reelect her and send her to the premier's chair uh, for the first time after having lost the premiership? That's what this is going to, to come down to. And I don't think that those answers have shaken themselves out yet. Jason, as a political analyst, I, I want to get your thoughts on this. We know the politics aren't black and white. And there are gray areas for sure. But how much in your experience does the last 39 days or last handful of weeks mean? I mean, if I'm dyed in the wool NDP or dyed in the wool UCP, is my vote changeable in 39 short days? I, I think it can be. And the reason why is that, you know, don't underestimate the fact that someone can flub up or someone can, can and uh, something can come out, you know, a piece of opposition research, uh, a, a really terrible policy position that does not resonate uh, with, with Albertans. Those are things that can happen in 39 days. So it, it is a little bit like walking a tightrope. You know, the, the, the party platforms have been set. The branding has been chosen. You know the 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 way that the the schedule is going to run for the next 39 days. Yep, yeah, that's all going to be tabled. Um, you know, and run according to a playbook. There will be a little bit of room for adaptivity, but from the voters' end, <clears throat> this may be the time that they start to pay attention. We can't make the assumption that the folks that are you know diehard orange or diehard blue are what comprise this province. There's there's a large swath of people in the middle, and they, they may end up voting blue and they may end up voting orange because they may view that as the only two choices in what has essentially almost become a two-party system in Alberta. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't mean they're paying attention yet. And so this is going to be the time where they ask their neighbors. This is going to be the time where, you know, during the NBA playoffs, you know, who knows, you know, uh, uh, an attack ad might come in during a commercial break, and, and they may have to watch that and, you know, reconcile with what they're going to do in the next election. I, I think every day will be critical, and it still could sway the outcome in which all polling shows is going to be a very tight election and is going to be an election that rests on Calgary. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you, Jason, sort of biggest battleground then between the UCP and the NDP. Are we still traditionally, it looks like Edmonton, probably going NDP, rural areas probably going UCP? Does that why, you know, we leave Calgary as sort of the, the, the unknown because we're a different, sort of a different uh, animal here in this city? Yeah, but I also think it's because of uh, just the math. Right. You know, when when Rachel Notley and the NDP first formed uh, government, they were able to, you know, snag 15 seats. And then Jason Kenney ran the table in 2019 with 23 of Calgary's ridings. And so, you know, this is this is going to be the tall order for the NDP. They, they have to have a UCP 2019 performance uh, to be able to form the next government. Uh, and, and that's a that's a tall order because that's a lot of flips. So, you know, theoretically, the NDP and the UCP could split Calgary and the UCP would remain in government. And so, you know, part of it is math. Uh, part of it is, I think, just the city. You know, there we, we've, you know, where, where Calgary goes, so the, does the victor go the spoils. Um, and, and I think that that's because, 
you know, we, we haven't been able to be traditionally boxed in, you know, either economically, um, uh, socially, in one way or the other, when it concerns municipal, provincial, or, or federal. Federal is the most consistent in Calgary, but it's most consistently blue in Alberta. But what I would, you know, caution us to think about is the fact that, you know, right now we don't have a very engaged Calgary. You know, we aren't seeing a lot of engagement, at least from my vantage point, at the civic level. You know, we went through an election. It was a pretty quiet election uh, a few years ago at the municipal level. We're not seeing folks riled up about certain issues the way that we were. We aren't seeing, you know, Calgary businesses and business leaders, you know, being quite vocal the way they were in 2019. We haven't seen unions um, be quite vocal as they were in the municipal election or in 2019. So to me, it's a bit of an odd one. We're, we're, a bit quiet. We're, we're, we're on the edges here, but maybe it's the writ dropping that, that gets us engaged and we get a better chance of understanding what Calgary's place will be in defining the election narrative for the two parties. Going to be a lot to talk about. Going to be an mm-hmm. interesting uh, several weeks ahead of us. Thank you so much for your time and your insight, Jason. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Jason Ribeiro, political analyst and president of the Calgary Surge. Time to take a moment. Uh, We could all use a little top-up when it comes to our mental health. And joining us live in studio this morning for our mental health moment is mental health advocate and social worker. We call her KGB. She's Karen Gallagher-Burt. Hi, Karen. How are you? Good morning. I'm good, although this is very early. It is very early, so we appreciate you coming in live. It's nice to see you face-to-face and have, you know, a a conversation about something that I just think is so still so topical for everybody, no matter your age, no matter where you fit into the world everybody's talking about mental health right now. So we're always grateful that you come in and share your expertise. Pleasure. And today we're talking about accessing services. And there are a lot of services out there and available. What, which ones are you sort of promoting with your people right now? Do you know, so I work full-time at the Distress Centre, as I've mentioned, and part of our services is 211. And 211's been around since 2005. And it launched the same time as 311, and 311 gets millions of calls. Mm-hmm. 211, not so many. Um, what the cool part of 211 is, it's 24-7. You've got ta- text, chat, or phone, and you've got an expert on what the services are who can help you not just navigate, but also advocate for you. And folks forget that that's available. So, I, yeah, I would say, like, you know, I, I had no idea. 24 hours a day. I didn't know. I didn't been, know that part. I've been around yeah. for 18 yeah. years. That's crazy to me. Uh, but when it comes to, to reaching out, and I think that, we have trepidation when, you know, we are going through something, your judgment might be clouded. You feel like there's nobody there to help you. You call 211. That's the first step. So it makes it a little easier because you're not having to do the legwork and look up something, so to speak. A hundred percent. And most Calgarians, they know what service they want. So they'll say, I need a new daycare. I need um, elderly care for my family. So they have an idea of what it is they want. They just don't know what it's called. And so that's the cool part. It's not like you're using um, an information lookup. You're actually talking to a live person every time. And that live person is going to ask some questions. And if possible, if you're comfortable, we'll get your postal code. Then we can geolocate what is closest to you. My favorite part as a social worker is we'll offer a follow-up. We'll call you back in a few days to see if those services worked And if they didn't, we can advocate for you. And I think that's a game changer for many people. The bonus part is if you do it on the phone, we've got 200 languages. Wow. Every single one that we can imagine, plus all of the indigenous languages. So we can translate right away. 
That is amazing. And I love the, the texting part of it because I think if you're getting young people involved and giving them them that access, that's that's their language. Yeah, 100%. Our, our Connect Teen program has been around this year. It turns 40, so I'm not sure how we can call it teen anymore. <laughs> um, but being around for 40 years, we added text and chat in there first because we knew that that's where the youth were. And we hardly ever have the phone ring mm-hmm. on that particular one. It's always text and chat because that's how our youth connect. But again, it's also discreet. Uh, I I can tell you at Easter, not Easter time, at Thanksgiving last year, we had a young youth who was under the age of 10 who was texting at the dinner table at Thanksgiving under the table because there was some family conflict. And so they were texting the connecting line, chatting with someone, and in that moment, getting some tips on how to handle what was happening with the family. That's awesome. That's incredible. That's a real great example, Karen, of it working. We are speaking with Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate and social worker working at the Distress Centre. Uh, 211, I want to bring it back a bit because you mm-hmm. mentioned the postal code to give a location of services. Obviously, you want to make it as easy as possible, and you might not have transportation. You have to get to the other side of the city. But besides the postal code, does the 211 work under a, an umbrella of anonymity to a certain extent? Um, yes and no. Uh, when you call in, we're not going to see your number. Okay. Um, that's going to be up to you if you choose to share that. Um, we, we always try and make people comfortable. Usually on 211, it's not as an emergent crisis lines we might get things that are a bit more emergent where we might have to find someone generally speaking but our our staff and our volunteers they're cross-trained so they understand both the crisis side and the information and referral and navigation side and and so it's magic when you call in if you really want to talk and you just need someone to listen those crisis lines at 266 help are just magical but if it's more of that information side 211 is the place to go do you know any stats on that in terms of, you know, seeing, you know, at the distress center, for example, maybe you see people who've used 211. Is it is it a younger person's tool? Is it an older person's tool? Or are you seeing people from all walks using 211 right I'd say now? it's a blend now. When we started back in 05, I was there actually. And um, what we saw first was other professionals. So other social workers, people in hospitals, people who worked with other folks who didn't know where to go. Mm-hmm. So it started out, it was a lot of professionals calling us. And then that sort of expanded. And I'd say at the time, because it was only the phone, it was more of an older population. But now it's spread across all populations. Plus, we serve all of southern Alberta. So we're not just Calgary. Um, there's a 211 here. There's 211 in, in Edmonton. And they all con- come under the 211 Alberta umbrella. Um, and it is predominantly funded by our government of Alberta through United Way of Capital Region as the fiscal agent. So they take care of us. And the government has been very good at supporting 211, good. especially during like the flood and during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. They upped the services. We were out in High River helping them navigate in High River. What are you seeing, uh, you know, as a professional and you, know, you work yeah. through the distress center and as a social worker, you know, you mentioned the, you know, maybe some increased use during the pandemic. Post-pandemic, we've heard anecdotal stories about people suffering. Have you seen that as far as the, the need and the demand? 100%. Um, what's interesting is uh, I came back to the distress center after 10 years and 10 years ago you know, on the phones, probably one in 10 of the phone calls had someone with suicidal ideation. Now it's one in four. Wow. On the phone and on the text and chat, it's one in two because of that increased perceived anonymity. Um, you just and it takes longer to do it. So even though we have the same number of volunteers, the calls are longer, the texts are longer, the chats are longer. So we've struggled a bit to pull that up. So I will promote it's volunteer week. We're always looking for volunteers 
to support on those lines. Yeah, fantastic. Kudos to all of those who who give oh, their time to, to do that. Do you, can we blame this rise in the pandemic or is it just more that people have learned to reach out now? You know, I, I'm going to say it's a bit of both, but I would certainly say the pandemic has exposed a lot of things, a lot of gaps that weren't visible before. When we saw people become isolated, we started to recognize a bit more how much isolation and loneliness was part of our mental health. And if you had those resources before and all of a sudden they're taken away, we did see an increase there in um, people's depression and depressive thoughts, a lot of anxiety. Uh, our, our Connect team got very busy in the mornings. It was kids in the mornings trying to figure out, am I going to school? Am I not going to school? Where's mom and dad? Right, right, right. So the Connect team got super busy in the mornings. It was very odd but that was Mm -hmm. pandemic related yeah just before i let you go you mentioned the volunteer aspect if people are interested where's the best place that they can reach out to to maybe lend their time you bet so distress center calgary if you go on our website we've got on there the link to apply to volunteer it's a tough volunteer gig but also there's an organization um volunteer calgary it it changed names a couple times but they also have a, a fantastic portal where you can find different volunteer opportunities one ofs but also long term volunteer opportunities Wonderful. Thank you so much. And that phone number again that you, you talked about earlier is 266-HELP? Yep, 266-HELP for, for any support for um, an adult, 2616 for our youth line, and then 211. Perfect. Easy peasy. They're all there. They're available. Reach out if you need help. There, there are so many people that are willing and able and, and happy to be there to help anyone who might be in crisis today. 100%. So, you're it, never alone. Yeah, perfect. Good message. Thank you so much, Karen. Love that you're here live with us. Thanks yes. for coming in. Thank you. Happy Thursday. Karen Gallagher-Burt, mental health advocate, social worker at the Distress Centre. It's been five years since cannabis was legalized in Canada. With details on the state of the industry and the potential growth, we're joined this morning by George Smitherman, who is president and CEO of Cannabis Council of Canada. Good morning to you, George. Happy 420, by the way. Oh, happy 420 to you, Calgary. Uh, Good morning. Uh, Let's talk a little bit about the state of the cannabis industry in Canada. Would you say overall, you know, looking back at the past five years, has this been a successful legalization? You know, in many senses, yes. Successful insofar as consumers are enjoying a really, really wide range of innovative products that have been tested and are safe. And 80% of Canadians in all the public opinion polls that I've seen are satisfied one way or the other with it. But it remains to be a little bit of a model that isn't rewarding uh, commercial success. And the government piece in the middle is really squeezing out the retailers on one side and the producers on the other. So we do need to make some rebalancing of the financial arrangements. But I do think it has been a success and it's, it's a model that's being looked at from countries all around the world. Wow. Yeah. So that that chronicles the challenges facing a new industry. And I would think you could argue that any new industry is going to face challenges. How about let's talk about the legal aspect. Uh, You know, I think that there was, you know, some pushback from people saying, oh, the society is going to go to excuse the term pot Mm -hmm. if this happens Uh, legally. Have there been many issues? No, I mean, to the contrary, somebody should do a study and say, how much have we saved so far by not pressing 
25 or 30,000 criminal charges for people with minor amounts of cannabis. So, you know, I think there were a lot, was a lot of speculation that this was going to lead to some form of ter terrible chaos and social disorder. What I've heard from a bunch of police officers is that they'd rather deal with a crowd that uh, had consumed some cannabis than was all revved up on alcohol. So mm -hmm. I think actually that's one of the areas where it really has been a success because some people did paint sort of doomsday scenarios. But I think in a typical, typical Canadian way, we've managed this very, very maturely. That's the way I'd characterize it. Now, you talked to just a bit ago about the squeeze, you know, the financial side of things. It, it's, I think uh, there are a lot of, you know, businesses and investment people that thought this was going to be a huge boon and it really hasn't turned out to be that for many. Is that because of the government involvement? I think the government thought it was going to be a huge boon too. So here, there and everywhere, they've tacked fees and charges on it. I really have to say that one of the remarkable bits about Canada is how much each province gets a shot at it in terms of the designing their own model for distribution, their own model for retail, and actually deciding what level of taxation they want. I live in Ontario where the combination of Ontario's approach to the excise tax and the money that they make through the Ontario cannabis store combined is adding up to a lot. Alberta's approach is very, very uh, different and Saskatchewan and Manitoba too. So that's the Canadian way. But for the cannabis companies, it's really complicated because you've got from PEI to British Columbia and the territories too, everybody with their own approach. How has, George, the illegal cannabis industry combated the black market? We were told it you know, might shut it down or diminish it to the point where it is barely in existence. Has that been the case? And, and can we have any numbers or any indication as to how many people are still buying from their quote-unquote dealers instead of a, an authorized and certified store? You know, a lot of it comes in by uh, off of uh, online and delivered through Canada Post. So one of the ironies that's a bit uh, a bit of a sting is that Canada Post is actually frequently the deliverer of uh, illegal cannabis that's purchased off of websites. But we have taken a big bite out of it. The numbers vary by province, and the statistics set isn't really that good. Our organization would say not much more than 50%. So we'd say that the legal market has taken you know, more or less 50% of the business. In some categories, we've done better than others. In dry flour, we've become much more competitive. But in some formats like edibles, uh, we really don't have a very good offering for the regular consumer of cannabis. So many of those people are prone yet to get their edibles products from the illicit market, which is a real safety risk. How do you see the industry evolving over the next few years? Do you think it'll sort of stay as is, George, or do you, do you see anything big or concrete happening anytime soon? I think I think it's in a constant state of evolution and that's natural because as you said before it's a new sector and there had been no roadmap even from another nation it wasn't just new to Canada it was new to the world so I think that that means that there will be a lot of refinement to the model you know there's been a really exciting array of companies coast to coast to coast, like uh, a diverse array, small, medium and large. And really now the fight is on to try and maintain as many of those 
uh, or operations that have come to life and sometimes actually brought back to life rural and remote communities in Canada. So the fight is on to give them a better shot at being successful and sustaining the investments that have been made. I think, you know, we're going to continue to grow. It's a about to, you know, it's about a $5 billion sector so far with quite a bit of growth yet on our horizon. And the cannabis consumer is going to continue to see a range of innovative products. And, you know, for anybody that's canna curious, maybe never intends to buy anything, go into one of these stores and just check out the array of innovation that's occurred there. You might even be surprised to see some of the products that are focused on CBD and not THC at all, as an example. So still a lot of potential, but lots of transition and there will be some painful adjustments uh, for some, uh, you know, and, and, and there will definitely be some some people that, uh, you know, lose, uh, lose their investments, et cetera. That is that, that is the challenging nature of the business. Interesting times, and uh, best of luck to your organization moving ahead. George, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure, anytime. Have a nice day. You too. It's George Smitherman, President and CEO of Cannabis Council of Canada, and he had some very interesting things to say. And the business side always impresses me because it's a, it's a brand new industry. Mm-hmm. This isn't a, you know a new player in the game. There's going to be trials and tri- uh, tribulations. That's just the way it is. Have you been into a store? What? In Calgary. No, honestly. I know you have. Actually, I'm asking, and I know the answer, because you and I both have looked for the CBD oil to help us sleep. Absolutely. And as you get older, these things happen. You don't sleep as well. I have. And the model was as advertised. They're not going to tell you anything specific. They're not going to prescribe. That's my frustration. You you don't like that. Well, so, you know, as a teenager, I smoked pot because (laughs) it was, that's just what you did kind of thing, right? And there was no other... You know, you didn't need to go and ask what strain is this or you just that it was there and that's what you did. Now you go into a store and I want help. I want to mm-hmm. know, like, I, I'm not interested in, in the THC part of it, but I am interested in the CBD part of it. But you can't ask for help because they're not legally allowed to give you anything that might yeah. look like a recommendation or a prescription. So they won't, if you're kind of curious, as he said, go in and look. Hey, I think it's, they're, they're pretty cool. Some of the stores yeah. are really neat. Um, but they can't really help you if you don't know what you're after. And so, yeah. That's the frustrating part to me. The way it works now, and I, I don't know of another way, if you don't have a friend or a family member or a neighbor who knows, is knowledgeable in this area, mm-hmm. you're literally on your own. Like, yeah. are you left to Google to find out, hey, I can't sleep. What type yeah. of oil, or should I take a capsule of the CBD? How many grams should I and be looking at? you'll find a million different and, answers yeah, out there. And, and, but when you go in, you're not allowed to ask. So that's a little bizarre. I find that the frustrating part of it for people who want it for you know medicinal purposes, sleeping purposes. If you're going to get high, they probably can help you out more there, or you already know. And great, good on you. But if it's for any other purpose, it seems that they they aren't able to or not allowed to help you. Whether or not there should be a government list in these stores, that the government has approved Mm -hmm. some examples. Like if you're having trouble sleeping, try... Because I think what it gets down to is the ownership and liability. I'm sure. And I get that. But having said that, you're going in with something that might be like this is what we're asking on the text line are you a long time user and has this changed where you get your product from or are you brand new to it and if you're brand new to it how do you get the knowledge how do you figure it out or maybe you you don't like smoking you want to try yeah. an edible yeah. just to have a giggle with your friends i don't think there's anything wrong with that either but how do you know what you're supposed to do and not do absolutely
For most of us, crime is something we see on the news. We never think it could happen to us until it does. Loved ones are gone, and for the survivors, the scars will never heal. I'm Nancy Hickst, a senior crime reporter for Global News. And on this season of Crime Beat, I'll take you inside some of the most serious crime stories I've covered. Season six of Crime Beat is available now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and all podcast platforms.